As we have already noted, we're thankful, each of us, without doubt, that God has blessed us with a measure of health today and with the soundness in mind that we would have the desire to assemble and to gather this morning. As always, we're certainly thankful and mindful of our well-being, but we do wish to continue to recollect and remember those whose condition health-wise isn't nearly what, what they would prefer, and we want to continue to rush to their side with the avenue of prayer. The lesson this morning will take us to the Old Testament, so may I encourage you, at least for the time being, to, to be finding 2 Kings chapter 5 in your Bible. And we will devote a few moments of consideration to a development in that chapter. It's probably a scene somewhat familiar to us, but nonetheless, the lessons from it are timeless. This opening slide is in many ways a simple introduction to some of the factors that we'll consider this morning. You know, there's a slogan, a statement that perhaps, perhaps each of us have heard many times, and I simply borrowed Winston Churchill's way of putting it. It reads like this, Those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. You know, the matters in history are so often very straightforward and very direct, and yet sometimes we think far too much of our own wisdom, we tend to think far too much of our own capability and we end up making the exact same mistake that those previous and prior to us also made. Wouldn't it be far better if we could learn from their mistakes, not make the same ones, and perhaps live in a much more direct and pleasing way? Well, with that being said, Naaman is going to put before us some issues today that will fall directly in that category. And so as we close that particular slide, might we say that the things we're about to study this morning are events that transpired in the life of a man who lived centuries ago. In fact, more than a millennium ago. And yet, you and I, if we aren't careful, can make the exact same mistake in principle he made. And we can find ourselves suffering mightily. Let's see, in fact, if we can't study in some detail what that was. Let me turn the slide. And might I invite you to listen as I read the first portion, at least, of Second Kings, the fifth chapter. The setting here is so very interesting, and it goes like this. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He also was a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to... Go, and I will send thee, send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed, and took with him ten talents of silver, and six thousand pieces of gold, and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man does send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? 
Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so, when Elisha, the man of God, had heard the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Those are the first 14 verses of 2 Kings 5. And on this particular slide, I have merely attempted to summarize the historical background so that we can put in place the features of the individuals present. And so, as you'll notice, we encounter initially the king of Syria. He was a strong and mighty man, and one of his servants was a man named Naaman. Naaman was honorable, highly respected, he was greatly revered for being a man capable with the things charged to him, but the problem was he was a leper. In that day and time, as you and I can well imagine, to be afflicted with leprosy was a sore and severe matter. It was such that, at least among the Israelites, you could not have contact with these people. Now, since he wasn't an Israelite, of course, that particular law might have been somewhat different, but nonetheless... There was a great deal of misery with the life of a leper, a great deal of challenge, a great deal of social issue. But you'll notice that among the things we readily see, these Syrians had captured a little Israelite girl. And she very quickly made note, she was a servant to Naaman's wife, and she said, if only this man were near to the prophet of God, that prophet could heal him of this. And you can imagine the excitement that must have filled Naaman's heart. You mean there's a cure for this? You mean to tell me that there's somebody in this territory so nearby who can render a cure for leprosy? And rather quickly, you may appreciate that the king of Syria then put together a letter and he sent it by way of Naaman as well as an entourage of gifts off to... Jehoram, the king of the people of God, and urging, may you bring cure to Naaman. Make Naaman be cured by the things available in your territory. And Jehoram was initially beset with a bit of disgust. Am I God? Can I cure leprosy? But thanks be unto God, Elisha was aware of the information that had come to Jehoram, and he said, you send him to me. And so it was that Naaman came to the house of Elisha. 
And when he came, he received a very different reaction that he anticipated. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Elisha didn't even come out to visit him himself. He sent a messenger and said, You go and dip seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be clean. And upon hearing that news, Naaman was upset. He had been given the cure he was seeking and he was angry. He was upset because he himself admitted, I thought surely he will come out and do some great thing over me raising his hands, perhaps some especial public sentiment and service. But yet none of that happened, and the text says he went away in a rage. And not only that, he said, look, the Jordan River, there are rivers far cleaner than that one. Far par, Abana, while those rivers I'm well familiar with, and I'm telling you, they're much cleaner than the Jordan. Can I dip in them? As he went away in a rage, it was eventually the case that his own servants came to him. And they attempted to reason with him. And they said, if the prophet had demanded some great thing of you, wouldn't you have done it? Remember, he had brought a large number of monies. He had brought a large number of other things which he was more than happy to offer as a token of his appreciation. And yet, money wasn't asked. He was simply told to dip in the river Jordan. Upon their reasoning with him, he finally acquiesced and he went to the Jordan River and he dipped seven times. Just as Elisha had indicated and the text says, he was clean. As you and I close that particular episode, it has often been a reminder of a number of principles. Why don't we develop some of them one by one with a, with a list of lessons that would seem very appropriate to you and me today. The first mistake that Naaman made, he went to the wrong source. Now we remember he was prompted, of course, by the letter of the king, but isn't it true? Here was a man who sought help from the king of Israel. And even Jehoram admitted, I can do nothing about this. Am I God? There was no power, nothing within the confines of the knowledge of Jehoram, the king of Israel, whereby he could heal leprosy. And yet, that was the first place to which Naaman had gone. Now, you'll see on this particular slide, it prompts you and I to perhaps think of it like this. Isn't it true that if we aren't very mindful and rather careful of the same, we too, even in the religious matters of our life, can go to the wrong source. We seek advice and counsel in even great matters that we intend to follow from the mouth of somebody who is not God. Let's develop it like this. In Isaiah 1 verse 18, God had challenged the people of Israel, "'Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord.'" Did you notice his invitation? Come to me, would you? I am more than happy to reason with you, to assert the purity and the perfection of my will, and to let you appreciate the promise that shall come of, with your faithful obedience. Naaman went to the wrong place. Jehoram couldn't do anything about curing leprosy. Now, Elisha could. And we are thankful that ultimately Naaman did come to the house of Elisha. 
as far as making additional applications, Romans 6.23 puts this in place. The wages of sin is death. That should ring very strongly in our hearts. The wages of sin is death. And you and I need to hear that often. And thus, I have no business going to dad or mom. They cannot cure my sin problem. The other people with whom I may associate, be it fellow workers, be it people at school, they can't cure my sin problem. The place that I must go, and you as well, of course. Jesus, John 6, verse 63, wasn't it Peter who admitted, Thou hast the words of eternal life. It'll do you and me no good to find help for our sin problem other than through the words of the Master. Isn't it rather amazing then as we come to the bottom of that slide? The advice sometimes of well-intentioned people can be very misdirected and rather far from being in harmony with the nature of the Word of God. Proverbs 19.21 highlights some matters touching that thought. But maybe first of all, can't we at least see Naaman initially went to the wrong source? May you and I not make that mistake. Lesson number two. In addition to this one, we can't miss the point. Elisha directly told Naaman what he needed to do. As far as wanting cured from leprosy, Naaman should have been thankful that Elisha didn't say, I don't know what you may do, but rather Elisha rather carefully said, you need to go and dip seven times in the Jordan River. The remedy was revealed. The Word of Heaven was set forth, and Naaman rejected it. He wasn't interested when he heard what it was. There's a number of easy lessons that you and I can make about that one. And I've asked you to develop some of them rather clearly with me. The seven times that he was to dip in the Jordan River. Now, we should appreciate that God hasn't told us that in the New Testament. But should we not conclude this? If that was the way that sins today were forgiven, we'd all better be getting on a plane and going to the land of Israel so that we could dip seven times in Jordan just like God told him to do. But we don't live in that day and time. But we still should at least follow the same precept. Whatever God has said for you and I to do, to cure the sin problem, it should be our joy and it should be our delight to proceed at once to do that. About the middle of that slide then, you'll note this. It's fair to notice too that the response, the information that God gave through the prophet Elisha, wasn't it so easy to understand? Wasn't it so easy to appreciate what it was? It was not difficult. It was not in any way hard to appreciate. Even a child could understand it. What is required today to be saved from sin? A child can still, by and large, understand it. It's not that unusual for a 9, 10, 11-year-old to walk down an aisle and say, I'd like to be baptized for the remission of my sins because a child can understand what Jesus the Master said. It doesn't take a Ph.D. in Greek or Aristotelian logic to understand it. It doesn't take a fancy set of degrees to appreciate it. Aren't we thankful God's Word is understandable? 
In Ephesians 3 verse 4, when there Paul could say, When you read, you may understand my knowledge and the mystery of God. And today we still have the appreciation of that easy understanding. More often than not, it's not the nature of failing to understand. It's just that we would rather not do it. Naaman knew very well what God said. He just didn't want to do it. He did not want to go to the Jordan River, and he didn't want to dip in it. He wanted to do something different. He wanted it done a different way. He was trying, you see, to tell God what God needed to be doing. He rejected the remedy that God set forth. Would you note the wording of verse 11 again? Verse number 11 tells us a bit about his reaction. But Naaman was wroth. What do you think about that word? Here was a prophet of God who had shared the cure for his leprosy. As serious and as difficult and as challenging as it was, the cure was revealed and he was angry. He didn't like the particular words the prophet had revealed. Sometimes today, you and I, at least in principle, can do the same. But God, I don't like it done that way. I'd rather it be done this way. And we try to insist on our will instead of God's. We try to tell Him what His business ought to be. And of course, in our finer moments, we know that we are not God. We are not the ones who have the right to dictate how sins are forgiven. Look at some of these verses. In Luke 13, verse 3, wasn't it Jesus who Himself said, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. But Jesus, I like this. Can't you forgive me and let me keep doing it? And the Lord says, No. So that man living in fornication, But I want to become a Christian. And the Lord says, You can't. Because I'm in the sin-forgiving business. And here's the way it needs to be done. And if you love that sin more than you love me, then you'll be lost. And that's true of any sin you and I might wish to name. Some might like to tell lies. Can I continue doing this just because it makes me look good? I would like to be a Christian, though. Can, Can I do both? And the Lord says, no. It doesn't matter what the sin is, if you and I love it more than we love the Master, then just like Naaman, we may go away wroth, but we'll stay lost. The matter that challenges, he became wroth. Look at another one. In Acts 2.38, here were a group of people. They had heard Peter preach so majestically about the Lord that they had crucified not many days before was really the Son of God. And they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter told them, Repent and be baptized. What if they'd said, But I don't like that answer. Can't you tell me something else? What if I give you a donation? Won't that do it? Can't you pray for me? It wouldn't have made any difference. Peter said, Here is what the God of heaven demands. And if you love Him and if you want to be forgiven, this is what you must do. About 3,000 of them did it. What about another one? In Matthew 25, 14 and following, 
There, of course, this individual who himself had been given one talent, and another had been given five, and another two. And the one talent man hadn't used what he was given. Doesn't it all challenge us that the God of heaven is the one that, that dictates for us? Naaman became wroth. He rejected God's remedy. Who are you and I to reject God's remedy? God says, this is what you've got to do in order to go to heaven. And who are we to tell him, I think I'd rather do something else. I think I'd rather do it differently. I just don't think that I like your answer. That's what Naaman did. And if we aren't careful, we can sometimes be no better. But the third consideration, the third lesson is this one. Not only did Naaman reject God's remedy, he wanted to substitute something else. This is perhaps the most common of all. It's not only that we wish to not be happy with God's remedy, but we may well think, you know, I've got a better idea. I think I'm wiser than you are, God. Why don't we do it this way? Look at the wording he used. Verse number 12. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? He made a statement with respect to all the waters of Israel, not only the Jordan, but all the other rivers. And he says, I tell you what I know, that there are two rivers in Damascus, and they're better. Now, what it was in his mind that made them better, he doesn't say. Maybe they were easier accessed. Maybe they were cleaner. Maybe they were much more familiar. We don't know, but the point is it doesn't matter. He thought they were better. And he was more than happy to offer a substitution. Can I not dip in them? What if I access myself to them? Well, on that slide, isn't it true that Naaman also made this statement? And as we read it a moment ago, perhaps it almost leaped off the page to us. Could I direct you again to the opening part of verse 11? Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought, I think. We so quickly at times are more than excited to trust our wisdom. Naaman thought that he had a better solution. Well, as you and I reflect and also develop it, look at this. 1 Corinthians 1.25 We read there, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Now that's not to say that there's any foolishness with God, but from the human standpoint, even what appears to be foolish on God's part is still far wiser than anything men can develop. That was the point Paul was making. And yet Naaman thought that these other rivers were better He thought that Elisha should have done a different ceremony to cleanse this leprosy. And how many times today do you and I substitute, I think, as opposed to what God says? At the bottom of the slide, there are, of course, several things, and there are many in our world today who are quick to say, but I just don't think that you have to be baptized. Excuse me. But Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Who are we 
to tell the Lord he didn't know what he was talking about. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Baptism doth also now save us. Excuse me. Who are we to tell the inspired Peter that he didn't know what he was writing? Obviously, we're in no position to tell the Master, to tell Peter, to tell Paul, to tell any of them that what they wrote was nonsense. But of course, that same idea applies to so many others as well. But I don't think it matters if you attend on Sunday night or not. I don't think it matters if you attend the Bible studies or not. I go once a week. That's enough. And yet the inspired writer said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Excuse me. What's my thinking relative to what the Lord said? It should be our chore, our lovely chore, to humbly submit ourselves to what the Master has dictated and rest assured that it will be better for us if we will simply do what He says. That's what faith is. And others might well say, well, I don't think it matters what I give. The Lord's got plenty of money. He's all-powerful. He can take care of things without my contribution. I'll give a little amount to satisfy my conscience, and that should be enough. Excuse me. Didn't Paul, by inspiration, write to give as we have been prospered? Well, if the Lord meant what He said, and He said what He meant, then who are we to question this? What about another consideration? Whether it be any of these, or even this one, and doesn't our world face this issue? But I don't think it matters how I dress. Oh, I'll dress okay for church services, but now when it comes to the other part of the week, I'll dress however I like because I feel good doing this. And it makes me look acceptable to my friends. But yet all the while, the Word of God says that we serve a different master than that. And aren't we encouraged in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And so in those contexts and others, we bend our will to do what the Master demands. That's what Naaman should have done from the start. But yet he chose, at least at first, to get angry and to rebel and to become fussy about it. But perhaps others, again, in our world might say, but I just don't think it matters. I can marry who I want, when I want. Doesn't God want me to be happy? God wants us to be faithful. And our happiness will follow if we're faithful to Him. And therefore, we appreciate the Lord's statement in Matthew 19, 9, Whosoever putteth away his wife, except it be for fornication, marrieth another, committeth adultery. Now the Lord said that, not me, not any group of men. You and I then appreciate this third lesson is a strong reminder, isn't it? We can easily fall, all of us, into a habit of thinking we know more than God does. What about a fourth lesson? Not only are God's ways supreme in that regard, but isn't it amazing? The first thing that Naaman became angry about, he thought that what the prophet said was too simple. Surely there's more to it than this. 
Surely he'll come out and make some public spectacle over me. And the wording he especially used was this. I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place. Naaman wanted a public scene. He wanted to be recognized by all that were about him. I want the notoriety for myself and surely the prophet will do this. And when what was told was such a low-key matter, you go and dip seven times in the Jordan River, Naaman was frustrated. He was angry, and he went away in a rage at first. What the prophet told him was just too simple. It wasn't glorified enough. Sometimes, as you and I can see, that can be a problem for us too. We think God ought to cater to the wealthy to those that are the namesakes of society. And sometimes through the ages, the church has kind of moved things in their direction. That was true in James chapter 2, wasn't it? There, James expressly wrote about those, don't the rich oppress you? Don't the rich, in fact, are such that if you sit, you sit here in a fine place and you set that poor man back in the corner somewhere, he said, you've committed a sin. You have become partial in your thinking. Our God is no respecter of persons. Whether we're finely educated or not, whether we're wealthy or not, God loves us, His Son died for us, and He wants us in His kingdom. But Naaman, he wanted some notoriety for himself. Sometimes you'll notice in the Word of God, oddly enough, the plan of salvation in its simplicity sometimes has been a stumbling block. There are people who want to come down an aisle and to give an oration or some great testimony of what God has done. God said this, You repent, you confess, and you be baptized. That's it. And if we will do that, it's not that the credit belongs to us, it belongs to Him. It's not that we are the ones who are the fine specimens, we are a lowly sinner. And we're the one in need of forgiveness. Naaman, first of all, was very disappointed at the lowly message that the prophet gave. You'll see at the bottom of that slide, the simplicity of God's system has been a stumbling block, unfortunately for some. Listen to the power of this. There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called and one hope of your calling. One Lord... One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. One. One God, one Spirit, one Lord, one body, one hope, one faith. That's it. Now men have confused that issue and added things to it, but that doesn't change what God said. I would offer then the thought that Naaman at least reminds us that we too must ever in humility simply desire to appreciate what it is that God has said and to lovingly do it. This fourth lesson, even though it may seem simple, we do it because the Lord said so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that was the very idea that was challenging some of the Corinthians. It was so simple that they weren't interested in it. They liked public discourses and public speeches and these high-ranking logical considerations. 
And the gospel just doesn't need all of that. The Corinthians were turning away from it because it wasn't sophisticated enough. Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1.27, Not many mighty, not many noble are called. You and I have to recognize that in submissiveness and in humility to simply do what God says. The final lesson of our time this morning. Naaman went away in a rage. May I again read the way that verse 12 concludes. So he turned and went away in a rage. I don't know how far he was at this time from the Jordan River. The text doesn't exactly come out and say. It could well be it was a fairly short journey from where he was to the Jordan, but he was uninterested. He went away angry. He went away mad. He went away disappointed, frustrated, and the text says in a rage. Curing from leprosy was that close, perhaps. It was that near. And he wasn't interested. Sometimes you and I can be just as close to salvation. But we turn and walk out this door lost. We're that close to being forgiven from sin that close to being in harmony with God, that close to being a Christian, faithfully in membership in the body of Christ, and we choose to walk away. It may not be that we go away mad or in a rage, but in principle we do the same thing Naaman did. We reject the message that was given, the Word of God, because we prefer something else. We would rather hear the message of the devil than the message of the Son of God. And when we do that, we turn and walk away. One of the saddest verses in all of John chapter 6 is that verse, verses 66 and following, in which it says, Many of them turned and walked no more with Him. The message of Jesus was more than they wanted to hear. Maybe it was too demanding for some. Maybe it was simply not the message they wanted. Whatever it was, they turned and left. I hope you and I will never do that. I hope whatever the Master says, that we won't turn away. We'll simply, like Paul, say, Whatever you command me to do, I'll do it. Acts 9, verse 6. Doesn't matter what He says. If we want to go to heaven, we'll do what He's told us. As we close that slide, the words of Jesus ring throughout this last idea. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Do we believe that? He says, you've got to leave aside whatever the sins in your life are and trust me that I'll not only forgive you, but give you a better life in its place. And if we believe that, and if we are faithful to follow it, it will come to pass. Not only will He be with us here, but the life that awaits us after this one is better than we can ever describe. All the wonders of heaven throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity as we conclude this lesson this morning, let's do it like this. Naaman lived over 2,800 years ago. But may I again say, if we don't learn the lessons of history, we'll be condemned to repeat them. Let's not repeat the mistakes Naaman made. And I've listed there on the slide some of the things we've highlighted. He went to the wrong source. May you and I turn to the amazing and true words of God. Not only that, 
He rejected overwhelmingly God's remedy initially. He thought he knew something better, wishing to make substitution, but he was wrong about that. Jesus Himself would say later in Matthew 15, anytime we substitute what we think for what God says, we've committed sin. Today, if there's anyone in this audience that would have a desire then to respond publicly to the gospel invitation, Jesus is inviting you to come lovingly. Don't make the same mistake Naaman made. Don't reject God's message. Jesus loved you so much He went to the cross for you. If you would like to be baptized into Christ today, we'd, we would love to help you. Upon your belief and your repentance and your confession, we'd be happy to assist you in that. But if you have become a Christian at some former time, but as of today you're not faithful, why don't you make things right by confessing those errors, repenting of them, and rushing to Jesus' open arms? And He's promised to forgive them. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And today, if we could help you in either, in either of these ways, we'd love to do it at once. While together we stand and while we sing.